Amen. So, hey, we've been looking at a number of different verses here from the book of Acts, and I want to take you back to the same verses that we've been spending some time on so far. They've been in Acts chapter 2. They've been sort of the bookend verses that help us understand what we're talking about. And so let's jump right on in. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We put it up here. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, remember that was a Jewish feast that happened about 50 days after Passover. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. That's the Holy Spirit of God descending on each one of them and they could see something, something visible that looked like fire. When God shows up, he decides sometimes to manifest himself in a metaphor that we can experience. And so tongues of fire, keep going. It says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That's the beginning of that chapter. Then when you get to the end of the chapter, we learn the result of what happens when God's Spirit comes into a group of people. What happens when God's Spirit shows up in a group of people? This is what happens at the end in chapter 2. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the, in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Here's the thing that we've been focusing on for the last few weeks, that when God's spirit shows up in a group of people, there are a few fundamental behaviors that begin. The first behavior is that they devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Remember, these were people who had come from all over the ancient world for this feast day, the day of Pentecost. They'd come from all over the ancient world. They were Jewish people. They had come there to that place to experience the feast. And while they were there, they heard a message of a man who claimed to be God, who was killed, and who rose again. And they said, I want to learn more about this. And there's only one place on the planet for them to hear the message of Jesus, and it is right there in Jerusalem at that time. And so they decide to stay. And as they decide to stay, it all comes down to this fact first. They needed to know this fire that God had just made available to them. They needed to know this Holy Spirit that God had just made available to them. They needed to know this Jesus that God had just made available to them. And there was nowhere else on the planet where they could learn it. They needed to know it. Now, we're an interesting group of people, and by that I don't just mean you and me in this room. I mean we people are an interesting thing. In general, now, now listen, I don't know what people in Africa feel about this, and I don't know what people in Asia feel about this, but I know that people in North America, the people who are in my circle frequently, feel about themselves very similarly to the way I feel about myself in this one regard. We think we're right. It doesn't matter how wrong you are. We still think we're right. I can give you evidence for this. Have you been on Facebook recently? If you have, you have been inundated with a bunch of people who think they're right, and you know they're not. 
which means you think that you're right. Correct? Every single time I go on Facebook, I am confirmed at how stupid the rest of the world is. It confirms this in me. I am absolutely such, man, I look at my Facebook feed with such smugness. I just scroll through there and like, I'm smarter than that person. I'm smarter than that politician. I'm smarter than that Supreme Court justice. I'm smarter than that whatever it is. I'm smarter than that journalist. I am a know-it-all. And I confess to you all today that I sometimes believe that I am right. And by sometimes, I mean all of them. When, when, I, was, when I was younger, um, my sister was in high school and I was in junior high, and she was doing this biology assignment. And she was in my, mom's, my mom and dad's bedroom complaining to them about this biology assignment that she had. And she was going on, and I'm hearing it from my bedroom down the hall, and she was going on and on about the fact that her teacher wanted her to give this answer on this worksheet, and it was nowhere to be found in her books. And she was so upset with her teacher, and she was just complaining and complaining and complaining. And so I'm listening in the hallway to try to find out what is this question her teacher has asked. And the question is, why does the stomach not digest itself? And it's a biology question. Why does the stomach not digest itself? Why do you not eat yourself from the inside out? And I hear the question, and I hear my sister's absolute frustration. She's mad. She's upset. Her teacher has not given her this answer, and my sister always needed to know the answer. Like, it was unacceptable to put a guess down on anything. It was unacceptable to ever get anything wrong. She needed the answer. And because I'm a nice brother, I went into my parents' bedroom and I said, Jody, I know the answer. It's because the mucosal lining inside the stomach. And she looks at me and she just goes, ah, you're such a jerk. You always think you know the right answer. And then she went right back to my mom and dad. And she was just like, what is this all about? My teacher doesn't tell me the answer. And now this son of yours comes into your bedroom and he pretends he knows the answer and he's just spouting all this stuff out. And she's like, what in the world, mom? Can you do something about him? And my mom looked at me and she was like, I don't know. So I left the room and I got my book and I brought it back because I have this Charlie Brown encyclopedia, 13 books of them. And in one of the books I had read, the stomach doesn't digest itself because of the mucosal lining. And so I didn't know what mucus was. I just knew what the answer was. And so I brought it there and I gave my mom the book and I said, it's right here. And she showed it to Jody and my sister looked at it and she's like, ah, and she stormed out of the room. My sister likes to be right. And I am. So, I mean, hey, what's... What, what's the problem? I, you know, I just, I just gave her the right answer, right? I mean, this is, this is our problem. We enter into life in so many ways, believing that for some reason, we know the answer and other people don't. We know the answer and other people don't. We know the right way to look at this situation and other people don't. And when we come to a story that we're going to look at today, we're going to be face to face with some people who really thought they were right and were absolutely wrong. And the challenge for all of us is to become the person who says, I might not be right on this, no matter how I feel about it. 
And there are a couple really, really important things in life that you have got to get straight that you don't know what you need to know. A few very important ones. I want to take you to this story that we're going to look at a little bit. And, and the first, before we get to the story, I'm going to explain a little bit of what happens here. When the apostles show up on the scene and they begin to tell people about Jesus, there's a problem. And Peter identifies the problem right at the very beginning. The problem is that his audience has killed Jesus. And Jesus is risen alive again, and so Peter is going to talk about him. But the audience, the people that he's talking to, are the ones who were standing there on the day of Passover, yelling out, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And so Peter begins his sermons by saying, you killed the author of life, and now God has raised him from the dead. And this was a problem to those people. Because, see, those people had crucified Jesus because he was outside of the box of what they believed God was supposed to be about. See, those people had an understanding of who God was, and Jesus didn't fit their box, and that's the reason that they killed him. But then the other Jews who showed up on the day of Pentecost, they also had their own box. And now they're hearing this story about Jesus who doesn't fit inside their God box. And so now they're staying in Jerusalem trying to hear. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching because they need to know what this fire of God is really all about. They need to really know it. So I want to walk you through three things that the people all knew about God before Jesus showed up on the scene. Three things that especially the religious leaders of the day knew about God before Jesus showed up on the scene. The first thing that they all knew was that God is eternal. Now that's an important word. It's a word that means that God has a relationship to time that is unlike anything we can imagine. Sometimes people say eternal means God is outside of time. So time flows down here and God is outside it. And so he can see the beginning from the end. Some people think that's what eternal means. Some people think eternal means everlasting. God existed before anything and he will exist after everything. And so God existed before even time existed and he will exist long after time has dissipated. Some people have that perspective. I'm just telling you, we don't know. The, the, the way to understand God's eternal nature is to simply say, I experience time, and God, whatever his relationship to time is, is way different from mine. He has always been and always will be. Here's a verse of scripture from the book of Habakkuk that illustrates this. It says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. And Habakkuk is talking about the temporary rulers in the world in contrast to the eternal God who is from everlasting before, who is a rock that does not change, and who will never die. Here's the first principle. God is eternal. He never dies. He has always been. He always will be. Death does not fit into the category of God. The second thing that you should know about how these people understood God, the box that they had God in, is that God is exclusive. 
Now, I'm using the word exclusive in the same way that video game companies sign an exclusive agreement with some video game distributor or like Xbox or, or maybe how a movie theater would sign an exclusive agreement with a particular actor so that this studio can produce that actor's movies but no one else can. Exclusivity means there's only one. There's only one. And the people who knew about God knew that there's only one. He is an exclusive kind of God. Take a look at this passage from the Old Testament. It says, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. God uses the word there, Lord. And we've talked about this before. Lord is the word that God uses for his own name at the burning bush when Moses says, what's your name? Lord, that we read in the English Bible, is all caps, L-O-R-D, because it, it stands for the Hebrew letters Y-H-W-H that we sometimes pronounce Yahweh, because those Hebrew letters are the four letters that God used to refer to himself at the burning bush. He said, this is my name, Yahweh. It doesn't mean anything. It's a proper name. It just is. God says, I am who I am, and so you can call me Yahweh. Nothing else in all creation bears that name, and that name doesn't mean anything else. It's just a name. And God says, here's a name that you can use to call me. Well, the ancient Hebrews never pronounced that name, and so when it shows up in our Bibles, we read the word Lord out loud just because we're maintaining that tradition with them. But it's important you remember, this is the burning bush name that God gives. And he says, that's me. That's my name. And I don't share my glory with anyone. No one shares glory with the almighty I am of the burning bush. No one shares God's glory. He's exclusive. The third thing you need to know that the Old Testament people knew is that God is selective. There's some people that God likes and there's some people that God doesn't like. He is very selective. God picks and he chooses. One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament is that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. God is selective. Well, let me show you this passage. I'm going to show you a couple of them actually, but the first one here says this. It's from Psalm 103. It says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Here it is. God is selective. If you are in the family, you are the children of righteous people. And if you keep God's rules and his laws, then God's love will be on you. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. The Old Testament people were very convinced that God was a selective God. If you followed God's law, you received God's love. It was very simple. Now, I think that's a misunderstanding of the Old Testament teaching, but it was definitely something that they held as a conviction. And it's definitely something that people still today hold as a conviction, that God is a selective kind of God. Just to give more proof of that, look at this one from Deuteronomy. God says to Moses, 
The Lord said to me, this is Moses speaking. He says, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. Moses says, God picked me. And one of these days, he's going to pick someone else like me. And God will give that person my words. God is selective. He's not going to give his words to just anybody. God is selective. He's not going to give his love to just anybody. You have to be righteous and you have to be special. And if you are righteous and you're special, then you get God's love and you get his words. If you're righteous, you get his love. But if you're special, you also get his words. There is a coming prophet that we are told, and that one gets God's words. Now, when Jesus shows up on the scene... These three principles get him dead. Because see, after all, Jesus claims he's God. He calls himself the Son of God. He refers to God as his heavenly Father, and that means that Jesus is calling himself equal with God, and God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Right? So since God doesn't share his glory with anyone, Jesus, this human being, can't possibly be what he says he is. Let's just test the theory. If Jesus is who he says he is, he can't die. So let's nail him to a cross and see what happens. Oh, if you are who you claim to be, come down from the cross. And he doesn't. And he dies. And the eternal God can't die. So as a result, this Jesus thing, this human being Jesus, they thought in their minds, he's clearly not God because he died. He's clearly not God because God doesn't share his glory with anyone. And oh, by the way, he's just a carpenter from Nazareth. Why should he get God's words? God doesn't do that. God picks special people for his words. He doesn't give his words to just anybody. Why would this carpenter dude from Nazareth receive God's words? It doesn't make sense. And so because Jesus doesn't fit in their picture of God and who God could be, they kill him. Well, now there's a problem. Because see, Peter is now talking about Jesus as if he's still alive. And Peter is talking about Jesus in a way that is acting like he's been confirmed by God to be who he claimed to be. Uh, Let me show you what Peter's been saying in Acts chapter 2. We haven't gotten into the details of this passage yet, but it's important for us to look at it today. Take a look at this. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God. Okay, wait a minute. This Jesus that was just killed, has now been exalted to God's right hand? That's like God is sharing his glory with someone else? And he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in here. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So God has a separate Holy Spirit that he can give to Jesus who can pour it out on others? This, this doesn't make sense to the people who understand that God is exclusive. He is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It doesn't make sense for God to be sharing his glory with this Jesus and for Jesus to be pouring out God's Holy Spirit on other people as if God could sit on his throne while his spirit is being poured out on others. It, it doesn't really make sense. And so Peter just keeps going. He says, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord. One of the things we talked about in our Made for More class this last Tuesday, 
is that Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the Bible, and this is that. This is, this is beginning to pick up that idea. Take a, take a look. We're going to keep reading what Peter is quoting from Psalm 2. Take a look at this next little bit. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The big question for anyone who was reading Old Testament David, you know, writing Psalm 2, is who's talking to whom? The Lord said to my Lord, well, who is David's Lord? David is the top king. Who is David's Lord? Are you telling me that there is the Lord, Lord, Yahweh, who has said to someone else that that other person can also be called Lord? What, what makes, this doesn't make sense that there's a, a Lord, Lord, who says to someone else, you can be Lord, and I will put all the nations under your feet. This is too big. This is already too expansive for the, for the people who have God in a box. And Peter says, so therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Messiah they knew. Messiah was a king that God had promised would come. What they didn't think, what they didn't expect, was that this Messiah could also be called Lord. A Jewish person doesn't use the word Lord because that word Lord is the word they use for God's divine name. And so since they use the word Lord for God's divine name, a Jewish person doesn't use that word casually. And Peter, a Jewish person speaking to Jewish people, says God made this Jesus, not just Messiah, Lord. Here's the thing. The first thing that you need to pick up from the teaching of the very first sermon that has ever been taught is that God is way bigger than we thought. God is is just so mind-blowing. The only word that humans have been able to come up with that even comes close to containing this idea of God being exclusive and not sharing his glory with anyone, and yet God who calls Jesus Lord and sends the Holy Spirit out to us, is that God is somehow three in one. The word for that is Trinity. You're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible because it's not there. Because it was a word that was invented by people later to try to understand what was going on here. But the people in Peter's day knew something was up. That God is Trinity. Already, this God is too much for the people of the day. Some people have responded to it. Some people are following it. But for some people, this is just way too much. But also notice another thing that Peter had said. Peter said that, yeah, Jesus died. Well, that means he's not eternal, right? (laughs) Except for the fact that he came back. So wait a minute. This guy, this Jesus, God somehow died and rose again. That's a mind-blowing kind of concept. That the eternal God would walk through death. The fact that the eternal God would come back to life, I mean, that makes sense right? If he is eternal, he can't stay dead. But the fact that he ever was dead is absolutely mind-blowing. And the fact that Jesus, a human being that we all saw, has risen from the dead means that that human being 
who claimed to be God, actually was God, mind blown. This is too much for them. I want to take you to some more Bible passages here. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 39. I'll put it back up here. Peter replies to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Wait a minute, this is a problem. Do you know why it's a problem? Because Peter just promised them the Holy Spirit is for anyone. No, 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 no. Our God is selective. Our God is the kind of God who picks the good people, he chooses the good people, and he doesn't choose the bad people. And yet here's Peter saying, no, God's Holy Spirit is for all people. And there's another problem. Peter was a fisherman. Peter's just a loser fisherman. What gives him the right to talk about all this? In fact, let me show you in Acts chapter 4, these people who are are looking at Peter, let's go to the next one. The people who are looking at Peter, they see the courage of Peter and John and realize that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There was nothing special about Peter and John. They were normal guys. The only thing they had going for them is they had hung out with Jesus. And we all know that Jesus is just some guy that we killed, right? Right? Listen, the Jewish leaders of the day could not handle the fact that God would send his spirit on normal people. They could not handle the fact that this God fills ordinary people. The God that they knew, he was exclusive, he was selective, he was eternal. And everything that Peter is saying is going outside of their box. This God, he's Trinity. This God, he dies and rises again. This God fills ordinary people. Listen, let's just say it outright. This God is too different. He's too different for us. So what do you think they did? What do you think they did? Well, the religious leaders of the day catch Peter and some of the other disciples and they throw him in jail. I'm going to read this passage to you. It's a little bit longer. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 34, and then we'll skip ahead to 40. 17 says this, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving to the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss wondering what this might lead to. Pause for just a moment. The the guys who are in charge here are absolutely thinking wrongly. They are afraid of what this is going to lead to. They should be terrified about these guys who were just locked up behind doors and found the way to teleport out. The, the, the soldiers are still there. The doors are still locked. If you're going to be afraid of everyone, anyone, be afraid of the dude who knows how to teleport. That's, that's the person to be afraid of. These people are afraid of what's going to happen next. You get on your knees. That's what happens next. But no, that's, 
They're thinking of the wrong thing. Keep going, verse 25. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with the officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Again, why are you afraid of the people with rocks? Be afraid of the dudes who can travel through space and time. Anyway, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. They are. Um, anyway, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Gamaliel then gives a speech, and he basically says, you guys can't stop this. If you try to stop it and it's from God, it will continue. If you just let them go and it's from God, then it'll happen. But if you let them go and it's not from God, it'll fizzle out on its own. So just let them go. Well, go to verse 40. It says, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And up until this point in time, I've kind of been making fun of the religious leaders of their day because they had all this awareness of who God was supposed to be. And once Jesus shows up on the scene, all of their awareness gets broken down. Nothing makes sense anymore. And they're still hanging on to what they think makes sense. But at the same time, my heart goes out to the apostles because did you notice something very interesting here? At the beginning of what we read today, the apostles were arrested. They were thrown in jail. And in the middle of the night, an angel rescued them, teleported them away. Somehow, with the doors still locked, got them out of the jail. The next day, they are called before the Sanhedrin. And they are questioned. And the Sanhedrin decides to flog them. Remember, flogging is the thing that happened to Jesus before he was crucified. These whips that they had fashioned with these long strands out at the end of them, and each strand with glass and other sort of firm, rocky kinds of things, sharp things embedded in the the strands. And, And Jesus received 39 lashes. It was the maximum any Jew was allowed to give or receive. 39 lashes. I don't know how many lashes the apostles got. But remember, this is the thing that leaves you bloody and, and just absolutely looking less like a human being than you are. And, and somehow these guys are flogged. And here's my dilemma. The angel that rescued them from a peaceful night's sleep in a jail did not rescue them from a torturous moment of flogging. 
See, this is one of those places where God would surprise me. Where I've experienced God's incredible blessings, amazing miracles. And I was, I was sleeping there at night and, you know, and the angel came and he got me out. Man, this is so awesome to have God on my side. To see God do miracles of healing people, the, the lame man that they healed earlier on. I mean, this is such an amazing thing to experience the presence of God in such a powerful way. And then they flog me. And my attitude, just like all of yours, turns around in a dime. And I'm like, what has God done for me lately? What, what about this pain? And here's another surprising thing about God that might be too much for us. The God who sometimes spares doesn't always spare, but he does always sustain. See, at the end of the story, Peter and the other apostles, they go around dancing, celebrating, cheering that they have been considered worthy by God of experiencing the same disgraceful torture that Jesus himself had. And for the apostles, they're not blaming God. They're not blaming God about the fact that he didn't show up when they wanted him to show up. They're not blaming God for the fact that he let them suffer. They're not blaming God that they had to go through this hardship even though the night before they got out of the easy thing. They're not blaming God. They're rejoicing. Because, see, the apostles have learned something that the religious leaders of the day have forgotten. It's a simple word, that God is holy. And, and here's the thing about holiness. By definition, the word holy in the ancient scriptures means a thing that is different. And not just different from some other thing. A thing that is different from all the things. Holy is a thing that is separated from all the other things. And where all these other things are normal, this other thing is holy. And God said time and time again that he is a holy God. He will share his glory with no one. He is separate. He is different. Let me take you all the way back to Exodus 3.14 when God says this. God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And a lot of times we focus on this verse because the word I am as a name for God is pretty cool. But I want to focus on the phrase. I am who I am. There is no description of God that is more accurate than that. He is who he is. No other description of God, no other label, nothing in all the universe is more accurate of describing God than that. He is who he is. There is nothing else to compare him to. He is his own standard. That's it. That's all of it. He is holy. He is separate. So if he surprises you, good. That means you've just encountered a little bit of God, God, who he actually is, as opposed to the God that only exists in your brain. When God somehow breaks through your normal life and he shows up in some way that you did not expect, hallelujah, he has just shown up. 
Because the God that you expect is never the God who's actually there. Now listen, don't get me wrong. God does love you. But when you say the phrase, God loves me, you are not speaking the truth. You are speaking a portion of the truth. Because the truth is, you don't know what love is. The truth is, your definition of love is way too weak to be tied to God. God loves you, yes, but he doesn't love you the way you think love is. He loves you the way love actually is, the way love comes from him. You think God is a God who exists to serve you, even though God is a God who sacrifices himself for you, he doesn't exist for you. He is chosen to be for you, but he himself is holy, he is separate, he is above all things. Listen, God is who he is. I'm going to tell you something that I think is one of the most obvious phrases that a human being can say. And yet, for some reason, we forget it all the time. God is bigger than you know. God is bigger than you know. I want with all of my heart for you and for me to know God. For me to really know God. I want that. But I can never, ever look myself in the mirror and say, made it. I can never, ever come to the place where I can say, yep, I know God. Because God is always bigger than I know. Listen, I told you I'm kind of an arrogant person. When I was younger in college, I came across a mathematical theory that you guys won't care about, but I'll tell it to you anyway. It's called, it's called Gödel's incompleteness axiom. You can look it up on Wikipedia. In fact, I did this morning. I was going to read you the first paragraph to try to describe to you what Wikipedia says about Gödel's incompleteness theorems, and then I realized, nope, you're not going to understand that because I didn't understand it either. And, and I'm a math major. I have a degree in this thing. So when I was in college, I was taking this class called, called um, analysis, math analysis. And it was our job in math analysis to try to determine why one plus one really does equal two. It's a really fascinating concept. It's really, really interesting. In fact, our first, our biggest proof was trying to prove the fundamental theorem of calculus, which proves that an integral is actually the antiderivative. It's so amazing. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So I learned in that class that there was this dude named Gödel who proved, get this, that math is wrong. See, you need to use this. Math is something you can use for your life. You can just, you can, anytime your student comes home from high school saying, mom, I don't understand how math is going to be useful. You can just say, well, listen, because of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, math is completely not even reliable. In fact, I'll tell you how it works. Here, here's how it is. Gödel used math to create a symbolic system of language with which he structured a sentence that said, this sentence is false. And so since he used math to construct a sentence that says this sentence is false, he could then step back and say, because math tells us that that sentence is false, the sentence is either true and it's false, or it's false, which means it's true. And because math at the same time is both true and false, either I have done something stupid by creating such a sentence, and math has mathematical sentences that we can't prove, or I have done something smart and math is incomplete, it's got lots of things out there that we can't prove. 
Now, I don't know if any of that stuff made sense to you or not, because it barely made sense to me. And when I first learned about it, I thought, my goodness, okay, so this dude lived in 1918 or whatever. And so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to disprove it, because you know I'm smart. And so I came down to Purdue's mathematics library because my wife was an engineering student. She could get me in. And so um, I, I came down to Purdue's math library and I spent some time in the library reading a whole bunch of documents on, on the incompleteness theorems. And uh, uh, at the end of it, I, I realized two things. I realized, number one, uh, I had no idea what I was reading. And number two, number two, the dude who wrote it was way smarter than I am. And all the other people agree with him. So what am I doing? A couple years later, after Jen and I were married, I began to really get bothered by Einstein's relativity. This whole idea that space and time are relative and, and time dilates. And, and I'm a nerd enough to know about this stuff. And I decided it must be wrong because if time is relative, then what does it mean to say that God is eternal? Maybe God is only eternal from one particular inertial frame. I don't know. But that's, a, that's an Einstein relativity joke. You don't have to worry about it. So anyway, there, I, I got to this place where I thought maybe, maybe, maybe it's not right. And so I started doing a lot of inter- internet research because I was nerdy enough to have the internet in 1998, and I was also able to find out there were a bunch of other people who didn't believe Einstein either, and I found this one dude who was promoting something called autodynamics, and later on, I was talking to a Purdue student who was in physics, and I was like, have you heard of autodynamics? And I started talking about my thing, and he started talking about general relativity and told me about all the thousands and thousands of proofs and the fact that, you know what, without the mathematical equations from Einstein, my GPS and my phone would never work because the the satellites that are out there are far enough away from Earth's gravity that time moves faster for them than it does for us. It's an amazing, weird thing, but it works. It happens. It's true, and I don't understand it. And I had to come to this place of saying, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that it's wrong. I had to come to this place where other people are smarter than I am. And there was a time in my life where when I didn't understand something, I doubted it. But I've grown up. And now I'm at a place where if I don't understand something, I worship God. If I don't understand something, I just step back and I'm just like, whoa, God, you did that? And you made some people smart enough to figure that out? Wow. God, you're you're bigger than my box. Thanks for shaking it up a little bit. I respond to doubt, confusion, with worship. Because, see, the only thing you really need to know about God is that He is way bigger than you are. But He sent His Son to be where you are. And that's enough to just say thanks. And that's enough to worship Him. My encouragement to you is to fully embrace this. When God doesn't make sense, hallelujah, When God doesn't make sense, that's the time to worship. When God doesn't make sense, that's the time you're just beginning to get closer. When God does make sense, that's the time to step back and slow down and say, wait a minute, where have I missed something? What have I failed to understand?
My prayer for you today is that you would leave this place with a firm understanding that God is bigger than you are. He is worthy of your worship. And when you encounter those moments that he confuses you, you receive them with joy because he is about to show you a little bit more about who he really is. I want to invite you to spend a few moments in silence and reflection and ask God to speak into your heart right here. Maybe you want to jot down some thoughts on that card. Maybe there's a prayer request that you need to give to us and just write it down before we go to our final closing song. But let me pray for you before we do. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.